You know, I uh, love the movie Amazing Grace, and I love the song even more. In that movie, John Newton says, I've come to a conclusion, I am a great sinner, but Christ is a great Savior. And really, that demonstrates the greatness of God in a practical sense when he takes sinners and makes them into saints, brings them together that we can be lights to the, our world, our lost world. And, you know, what an incredible thing. What an incredible thing. What an incredible thing the church is. Now, this morning, we're going to continue our study on what a church is to be and what a church is to do by looking to what a growing church is in the New Testament according to God's Word. In other words, what does a church look like that is growing into the mature body of believers that our Lord would have us to be that will impact this whole world and our local world for Christ? What does it look like? What is the church? Now, the word for church in the original language is, in the Greek, is ekklesia, and it's a Word, I think the New Testament writers kind of hijacked from uh, the secular use to refer to a body of or assembly of true believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what the word actually means is assembly. Or uh, you could uh, add the word koinonia, which means fellowship. We're an assembly, a fellowship of believers in Christ. Jesus himself being the first one to use the term in response to Peter's confession in Matthew 16, 18. Remember Christ says, uh, he's questioning his disciples. He says, who do people say that I am? And they say, some John the Baptist, some a risen prophet from the dead, so on and so forth. And he says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter blurts out, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And, and Jesus says, right you are, Peter. You know, flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And, and upon this confession, or uh, however you want to take that, I will build my church. And he uses the word ecclesia, assembly. In that passage, Christ refers to the one and only thing that he's doing in this world, and that is building his church. And he does that through the salvation of sinners, who he then, through the ministry of the church and the body of Christ, turns into saints who serve him and love him and, and become all that he would have them be. The term ecclesia is used 115 times in the New Testament, three times to refer to secular assemblies, twice to Israel, but 110 times it refers to an assembly of believers in Christ, predominantly the local church, which is normally how God works in this world is through the church, through the local church, the church at Corinth, the church at Ephesus, the church at Colossae, the church at Oakhurst. That's how God works, isn't it? So what is a local church, and what is the measure of their growth and their effectiveness? What is their measure of their sanctification or set-apartness from the world to Christ? And how do we tell if we have arrived at and are demonstrating the growth and maturity that our Lord would have for us? How do we do that? Let me start with a rather long quote from... Dr. Gene Getz, in his classic book, I think it's classic anyway, uh, The Measure of a Church. He also wrote another book called The Measure of a Man. And in this, he had this to say. He said, 
Some say a mature church is an active church. We evaluate progress by the number of meetings held each week and the number of different kinds of programs going on. Some say a mature church is a growing church. As long as new people are coming and staying, they believe they're a maturing church. As long as the pastoral staff is enlarging, they believe all is well. Some say a mature church is a giving church. As long as people are contributing financially to the ongoing program of the church and supporting its many ventures, they believe it's a maturing church. Some say a mature church is a soul-winning church. They say this is proof positive. When people are bringing others to Christ regularly, when they can account for regular professions of faith, regular baptisms, then for sure we have a New Testament church. Some say a mature church is a missionary-minded church a church that supports missions around the world, designating a large percentage of its overall budget to world evangelism. Some say a mature church is a smooth-running church, a church whose organizational machinery is oiled with every degree of regularity. And a finely it's a finely-tuned machine with job descriptions, eight-hour days, coffee breaks, and punch cards. Everyone does what he's hired to do on time and efficiently. Still others say a mature church is a spirit-filled church, this is a church that is enthusiastic and dynamic. It has lots of emotion and excitement. Everyone in it knows what its gift is and uses them regularly. And finally, some say the ultimate mark of maturity is the big church, with thousands coming on to Sunday school. In church every Sunday, maturity to them is represented by large paid staff, scores of buses that bring in kids for Sunday school every week, multiple programs, a radio and television ministry, a Christian day school, a Christian college and seminary, and, oh, yes, a printing press to prepare its own literature. Unfortunately, Getz goes on to say, some people really believe that what I have stated are actually biblical marks of maturity. And let me hurry to say that many of these things will be present in a mature church. There will be activity. Normally, the church will be growing numerically. People will be sharing their material possessions. People will be leading others to Jesus Christ and supporting missions. The church will be well organized. There will be a sense of enthusiasm and excitement. And certainly there may be a number of ministries that develop out of a dynamic New Testament church. But unfortunately, all these things can be present without having a mature church. And measured by biblical criteria, church may, the church may be found seriously wanting in spite of all activity, busyness, and organizational structure. End of quote. Long quote, but he says a lot. So what is the measure of a maturing and growing New Testament church? How can we make disciples as Jesus commanded us in the Great Commission? How, how do we bring a, a fellow believers to maturity and sanctification or holy lives? How do we as a church and assembly of true believers have an impact on our world with the gospel, both in and outside the church? You know, we don't take it for granted when people come here that they're saved. We find out what their profession of faith is. Do they profess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, their Savior and the Savior of the world? Are they uh, making the right confession? Are they making the right choices? Are they living life <laughs> the way Christ would have them? And, uh, but the main issue is the gospel. What do they believe? And how do they live out that gospel, the good news? Well, to answer some of those questions, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 16. And I want us to read it together just kind of to set the, 
the tone for this morning. Paul is talking about the church throughout this epistle. And he's already told us who we are in Christ, how we're to live, what uh, what our spiritual makeup is, and so on and so forth. And then he says, here he defines the church, I believe. And he says he gave some as apostles and some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. That is a mature church when they, what does he say? He says, until they attain to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by wind of every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. That's a tremendous sermon in our day and age all by itself. He says, but speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom, from Christ, the whole body being fitted and held together by that which every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Tremendous passage. And what we have here is an incredible description of what the church is and how our Lord has designed it to function in a very practical sense. You might say this is his blueprint for the life of the church. So let's, let's take a look at it. We're not going to go into a depth look, but we're just going to look at it, uh, the key elements here. First of all, it says gifted men are given to the church to equip the saints, God's people, for the work of the ministry, verses 11 and 12. He gave some as apostles and prophets, some as evangelists, pastors and teachers to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. Secondly, equipped people carry on that task to the building up of the body of Christ in verses 13 through 16. In other words, we are all intimately involved in the process of building Christ's church because we, what, are the church. It's not this building. It's not, we're not trying to fill this building. We're trying to, to build people. We're trying to bring them together in an assembly of true believers who impacts both inwardly and outwardly. Peter said it beautifully when he said this in 1 Peter 2, 4, and 5. He said, And coming to him, Christ, as to a living stone, uh, Christ in this passage is referred to as a chief cornerstone. And you know, a cornerstone was, was laid and everything was built off of the cornerstone. And if the cornerstone was out of alignment, the whole building was a mess. Christ is our chief cornerstone. And he says, in coming to him as a living stone which has been rejected by men but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also as living stones, plural, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices to God through Jesus Christ. Beautiful picture of the church, isn't it? Christ, the massive chief cornerstone, all the other living little stones are put in the walls, and finally the, the building's there, right? Beautiful picture, beautiful metaphor of the church. So let's look at it. Let's look at that uh, whole process in this passage and answer the question from God's Word, when is a church really growing and when is it really mature? 
what's God's goal for the church? What's God's goal for us as his assembly? Well, first of all, when gifted men given to the church are equipping God's people with the word of God to do the work of the ministry, it says at the end of verse 12, to the building up of the body of Christ. That builds up the body of Christ when when God's men, who he's given to the church, a gift to the church, they're not hired, they're not hirelings, but they're men given by God to the church. We don't pay a pastor's salary so we can hire him. We pay his salary so we can free him up to study and to teach and to minister. There's a huge, huge difference there. If you can hire somebody, you can fire them. If a pastor's out of line, you can exercise church discipline. That's one thing, but that's a spiritual way of dealing with it, not just firing the guy. We don't hire and fire. We free up to minister, and if a man violates that, that blessing, that privilege, then he can be dealt with in uh, biblical terms. But gifted men are given to the church to equip God's people with the word of God to do the work of the ministry. Um, now, much of that great burden to the building up of the body of Christ is placed on the preacher, the teacher, the elders, the Bible study teachers, Sunday school teachers, the disciplers. But it starts at the top. Ephesians 2.20 tells us the church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. The apostles and prophets are no longer around, uh, contrary to some people's thinking. Um, Ephesians 2.20 says it's built upon the foundation. You don't put the foundation on the 21st story. But now that, uh, that burden is placed on evangelists and pastor teachers, or pastors and teachers, uh, depending on your view of that. But uh, that's our burden. That's our responsibility. That's our privilege to be in that position. It starts at the top. Paul charged Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, preach the word. Be ready in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. He says, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they'll accumulate teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn aside the myth. A uh, popularly held, uh, um, basically societal uh, desires and stuff, and they'll start pushing those instead of teaching the word of God. And uh, James, tells, J James tells us in James 3.1, he says, Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing as such you will incur a stricter judgment. So God is going to hold a man accountable for what he teaches the church, what he teaches the body. It's important that he teaches the Bible forthrightly, accurately dividing the word of truth, 2 Timothy 2.15. Paul told the elders at Ephesus in Acts chapter 20 that he did not shrink from declaring to them anything that was profitable, declaring to them the whole purpose and counsel of God. The whole thing, the whole ball of wax, everything Paul knew, he uh, taught the church at Ephesus. And, and then he commended the elders at Ephesus as he was going to Jerusalem. He commended them to, the God, to God and to the word of his grace, he said, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. In other words, elders preach the word, pastors 
equip the saints, preach the word, build the church. Very simple. I don't think it's hard to understand. What's a pastor to do? He's to preach the word. In season, out of season, when it's, when it's popular, when it's not, how's he to preach it? Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. Why? Because it's so easy to figure out, stick your finger in the wind and go, oh, which way is society blowing? Oh, I'll preach that. Good business principles. You know, if your sermon can be preached anywhere but in a church, you're not preaching the truth. You might be preaching, repeating a lot of nice principles from uh, whoever uh, wrote the book that you're getting it out of, but we need to preach the word. We need to preach God's word, the truth. Sanctify them in the truth was Jesus' prayer. And he said, thy word is truth. Why do it that way? 2 Timothy 3.16, because all scripture is inspired by God. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Why? That the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. How do we equip people? Equip them with the word of God. That's why, you know, I keep telling people my, my goal is to be as unoriginal as possible in the use of the truth. I just want to preach the Bible. I don't have to come up with all the, you know, all the stuff that's going on today and all the wonder, wonder stuff that's going on. Just preach the word. It transforms people's lives. It's what gives them their inheritance. It's what gives them their walk with Christ. It transforms it sanctifies lives. Grow the church strong by the word of God, not an inch deep and a mile wide by the scheming of men. You know, the church growth movement and all that stuff, all it's produced for the most part is just not much of anything. Just a bunch of lost saints who think they're saved who uh, are about that deep and about that wide in their walk with Christ. They they may know the Lord Jesus Christ, and that's a good thing, but we want to go deep. We want a mature man. The measure of the stature belongs to the fullness of Christ. That's a mature church. That's the goal. That's what we're headed toward. And if it sounds redundant and just keep pounding that home, that's, there's a reason for it because we don't want to get off track. Then there's another aspect to all this, the body once being equipped with the word of God. Then we as God's equipped people are to be involved in the whole process of equipping and discipling others and helping them come to maturity. Look at verses 13 through 16 again. He says, until we all attain to the unity of the faith. How long do we keep preaching the word? How long do we keep equipping the saints? Well, until... We all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. That's the word epigonosco. It means the true knowledge of God. Not, not just, you know, everybody can go, well, oh, yeah, I believe in God. Well, who is God to you? Well, and then you get what they really believe. And that's scary. But the true knowledge, upon knowledge, epigonosco, it's, you know, everybody can say, yeah, I believe in God, but what do you believe about God? Who do you believe God to be? Do you, is it the God of the Bible or is it? something you've conjured up in your own mind or something you've taken a little from here, a little from there, a little from everywhere and 
put them all together and you come up with a golden calf. And that's why the Word of God is so important. It defines God. It defines how we're to live. It defines the church. It's very definitive. So he says, the true knowledge of the Son of God, who really is Christ, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. So if the goal is to be Christ-like and to have Christ-like maturity in our life, we better know who Christ is if we're going to be imitating him, right? You know, Paul said, be imitators of me as I am of Christ, and that, that was a, a, a worthy thing to say because if you look at Paul's life, he was imitating Christ, not perfectly, but that was the goal of his life. Um, and he says, as a result, we are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. <laughs> There's a lot that could be said there. He says, but seeking, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. I love that. Now, there's so much that could be said about these four verses, and apart from uh, preaching a 10-week series on it, I'm not going to give it all to you today. Okay? So don't worry. <laughs> but suffice it to say... The goal and the purpose of a growing and mature church is to bring everyone God has sent them to a Christ-like maturity or sanctification. I remember uh, the church I grew up in where John MacArthur was. He says, I don't pray for one new person in our church until I've matured the ones that are already there. Because as you're maturing people, they will actually do the work of the ministry. They will build the body. They will, you know, sheep beget sheep. So if you're not doing a good job maturing the ones you got, you know, uh, what are you doing? So anyway, the goal is the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. And then the end of verse 15, he says, grow up into all aspects who is the head, even Christ. That's the goal of our teaching. That's the goal of the sanctified church. That's the goal of growth. Starts here and it expands out there. And that can only happen as we minister and disciple and equip one another with the Word of God. I, you know, I love 2 Timothy 2 2. It was always one of my favorite verses. And still, as Paul tells Timothy, he says, The things you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, these entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And they're there you have four generations. Paul teaches Timothy, his son in the faith. Timothy teaches faithful men. Faithful men teach other faithful men. And other faithful men taught other faithful men on down through the ages and the millennia. And here we are. If that hadn't happened, if the word of God hadn't been discipled and passed on to generation after generation after generation after generation, there'd be no church. Faithful men teach the body. The body becomes faithful 
and teaches other faithful men and women, and here we are. Thank God for that. <laughs> you know, Paul told the Colossians in Colossians 3.16, he says, Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another. How are we to teach each other? Well, let the word of Christ richly dwell in you. Teach, admonish, nutheteo, uh, counsel to with the, the goal of change behavior and so on and so forth. Let it dwell in you richly, the word of Christ. He wanted them to emulate his ministry when he stated in Colossians 1, 28 and 29, he says, and we proclaim Christ admonishing every man, teaching every man, or you could say man and woman, uh, with all wisdom, so that we may present every man or person complete in Christ. That's the goal, that you would be complete in Christ. That's why we teach the Word of God week after week after week. Day after day, we read the Word of God. Day after day, we study it. Day after day, we pray. We get to know God. We, we are involved in the true knowledge of Christ and true understanding of Christ. That's that's the goal. It's, it's by design. It's not just happening by mistake. It's the word of God ministered to and through God's people that brings people to full maturity and Christ-likeness, both theologically and in their practice. And when you get a chance, read through the rest of Ephesians and see what the sanctified life looks like. We haven't got time to do that this morning. But you see, only sound doctrine produces sound lives. It's like starting the ship out on a sail. You, you start it out five degrees off. By the time it gets out there somewhere, it is so off, it's, it's scary. They have no idea where they are. You know, you start off right in the right degrees or wherever you're going, and you start, you end up at that destination. That's what the Word of God does for us. It keeps us on track. It tells us what God wants, who God is what he requires of our lives, and so on and so forth. That's why God's word is so important. I can't overemphasize that. Because there's a lot of charlatans out there. I hope we realize that. And how do you expose a charlatan? Well, you've got a standard. Don's really big on this. You've got the standard of the word of God. You compare everything to the Word of God, and it's, if it's off, it's not right. You don't just go, oh, they're so nice. They're such nice people. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of charlatans out there, a lot of hucksters with big toothy grins, pretty wives, and an ear-tickling message that resonates with unregenerate people or Christians who are ignorant of God's Word. That's what he tells us. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. You know, these guys with these false messages, they know what they're doing. They craft a message, and we'll look at this in a few weeks, that goes along with popularly held myths about life that society keeps perpetuating, like, like health, wealth, prosperity. Uh, you know, visualize what you want and then incubate it in your mind and then speak it into existence. <laughs> Just a bunch of baloney. And it's unbelievable that people even are willing to listen to this stuff, 
But if they've got no standard, if they've got no, no, nothing to compare it to, then sounds good, right? If you're not, you know, if you're ignorant of God's word and you don't know what God's word says, hey, it sounds good. This guy's religious. He's a teacher. That's why it says, not, let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing you'll incur a stricter judgment because it's so easy to lead sheep astray, not give them the right stuff. You know, it's like a baby. If you were to feed a baby at the point where they could actually eat chocolate, that's all they'd eat. They have absolutely no discernment, and they'd end up dying, right? That's a lot of Christians because they're ignorant of God's Word. They get this chocolatey diet, and it tastes good, and it sounds good, and it looks good, and wow, it works for him, and they get led astray. Every wind of doctrine that just kind of blows through the church and within a matter of years it's gone. But the word of God stands how long? Forever. Keep that in mind. A lot of charlatans. What's the safeguard to this kind of deception? Well, obviously having faithful leadership, faithful men who teach God's people the truth who then take that truth, the people take that truth and teach and disciple one another as they help each other to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. You know, you're not responsible ultimately for my sanctification, but you can sure help the process by confronting me or telling me when I'm off base or doing something stupid or saying something stupid. And you can sure help. We can sure help one another, can't we? If we know the Word of God and we know the standard by which we're to live and we can go, hey, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord in all respects. We can help each other. You know, that's why Sunday morning and Sunday school is so important. That's why the many Bible studies we have are so important. That's why uh, uh, it's so important to be involved in our man-to-man and woman-to-woman that will be coming up in March. And that, that'll be exciting where you can... Uh, meet with a, um, another woman-woman and man-to-man. <laughs> trying to get this straight. There will be no man-to-woman thing. Uh, that just creates problems. But um, where you've been in a discipleship relationship, learning the Word of God together. It'll be exciting. That's why we have uh, Pathway to Freedom. Steve exposits the Scripture. That's... That's why we have a wanna. It's so important for our kids. They, they learn the scripture. They learn the Bible. They learn that God is number one. We can help each other in the process. You see, when the word of God is faithfully taught, discipleship and spiritual growth and the building up of the body of Christ is the supernatural result. It leads, verse 13, to a church being unified, leads to the epigonosco, the true knowledge of Christ, permeating the minds of the disciples, which leads to maturity, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. In fact, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 2.16, but we have the mind of Christ. That's just another way of saying, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another. We have the mind of Christ available to us because of the indwelling spirit, because of the 3,000 or so pages the spirit of God has written for our 
benefit and our exhortation and our guiding. It's exciting stuff. This then causes the growth of the body, it says, for the building up of itself in love. As every joint works with every other joint, <laughs> and every part of the body works with every other part of the body with the Word of God, we are built up in love. And that's the measure of maturity in the church. Again, Getz had this to say. I just want to read this. He says, what is the greatest thing in all the world? Notice I did not say, what does man think is the greatest thing in the world? Rather, what is the greatest thing in the world? Obviously, many think status and power and being a constant success are the greatest things in the world. That is why we've had so much emphasis on competition at any cost, which has led to unbelievable acts of unkindness and hatred towards others, often resulting in outright war. Still others think money is the greatest thing. Some men will do almost anything to accumulate wealth regardless of the laws of society and accepted principles of human decency. Many people lie, businessmen cheat, thieves steal, prostitutes sell themselves, and all for one basic purpose, to acquire money. But the Bible makes it clear that there is something far greater than status and power and wealth. It's love. Petula Clark hate to date myself like this, but she said what the world needs now is love, sweet love, right? 60s, 70s. She didn't know why. She just thought it needed, and her concept of love was perverted. But the Bible defines love for us, doesn't it? This is the greatest thing in all the world and always has been, and it's the most significant mark of maturity in a local body of Christians. Paul stated it clearly and succinctly when he wrote to the Corinthians, and now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love, 1 Corinthians 13, 13. And love is the greatest mark of maturity in the individual Christian's life and the life of the church. Love is the ultimate mark of maturity, a Christ-like, sacrificial love as it's defined in Scripture. We're told to love the Lord our God with how much? All our heart, all our soul, all our mind, all our strength. That's a lot. That's everything you got. You're to love God with all that, and then God will love your neighbor through you as yourself. That's why it's the mark of maturity. It's Christ-like. It's God-like to love as he loves you and as you're to love him. John 13, 34, and 35, Jesus commands us to love one another even as he has loved us. And he says, by this all men will know that you're my disciples. By what? By your Christ-like love for one another. Wow. I mean, I'm a billboard, I'm an advertisement of Christ's love? Yeah. If you're loving like Christ loves, you are. 1 Corinthians 13 says love is more ec the more excellent way even than spiritual gifts and spirit-led ministry and spirit sacrifice and so on and so forth. You know, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not love, I'm what? A noisy gong or a clanging cymbal? If I 
If I give all my possessions to feed the poor and I have not love, it profits me how much? Nothing. If I uh, give my body to be burned, you know, like they did during the Vietnam War with the, the monks in Vietnam, very sad thing, but it says if, if it's not done out of love, it's, it's worthless. 1 Corinthians 14.1, we are exhorted to follow the way of love. 1 Corinthians 16.14 exhorts us to do everything we do in love. Jesus even told us in Matthew 5.44 to even love our enemies, even love liberal politicians, and pray for those who persecute you. Galatians 5.13 tells us to serve one another in love. Ephesians 4.2 says to be patient, bearing with one another in love. Ephesians 5.2 tells us to live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself for us. Uh, we are marked by sacrificial love. Here in Ephesians 4.15, we're told to speak the truth in love. Husbands are told to love their wives as Christ loves the church, Ephesians 5.25. Uh, in Philippians 2.2, we're told to have the same love for one another. Colossians 3.14, we're told... Beyond all these things, put on love, which is a perfect bond of unity. Second, Timothy 2.22 tells us to pursue love. Not just think about it, but pursue it. Go after it. Uh, Hebrews 10.23-25 tells us to consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. You know, I can't do that unless I'm considering other people, can I? And if I love other people, I consider them. I don't love them, they're, you know, they're the last thing on my mind besides myself. Consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Peter even tells us in 1 Peter 4, 8, that above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. You know, we live in a day and age where, I don't know about you, but it just makes me sick. People are just trying to dig up dirt. If a guy smoked a marijuana cigarette 50 years ago, it'll be brought up in his political campaign. You know, I mean, the world is constantly trying to expose your weaknesses, expose your sin, expose the ugliness that may be in your life. Whereas our love for others is to cover it. Doesn't mean we don't deal with sin. Doesn't mean we just ignore it. But it means we open our arms to people, take them in, and help them overcome in Christ. John concurs. He says, let us not love in word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. So what is a growing and maturing church? Well, it's a church where godly gifted men are equipping the saints with the word of God for the work of ministry. And as the members of the church take the word of God and minister to others, applying the truths of the word to one another. It brings about a unity of faith, knowledge, a true knowledge of Christ, and a fullness of maturity in Christ, the result being that believers are not led astray by false teachers, and the church functions properly, being fitted and held together by that which every joint supplies by the proper working of each individual part. And this causes the growth of the body in maturity, manifesting in the church being built up in love. Well, that's a mouthful, isn't it? But the end result is that we have a Christ-like love for one another and for a lost world. 
that's the ultimate mark of a Christian. Uh, last week I recognized or recommended Francis Schaeffer's old book called The Mark of a Christian. Schaeffer was probably the foremost apologist of the 20th century. And uh, he just broke it down. I mean, the guy was a brainiac beyond brainiac. He just broke it down to, you know, love God, love your neighbor, love each other. That's the mark of maturity. <coughs> Sacrificial Christ-like love being the ultimate mark of maturity. So there you have it, beloved. The growing mature church, simple to understand but hard to live. And the question is, what will we continue to do or what will we begin to do based on what we've heard this morning? Where can you personally contribute to the building up of the church body in love? Think about that. And you may already be doing that, and that's, that's wonderful, but it's by that which every joint supplies, by the proper working of each individual part. How is Christ going to work through each of us based on what we've heard this morning to the building up of one another in love in the body of Christ? I want you to mull that over in your mind this week and really think about it and then look for opportunities to minister to and love each other and love those who are not even that lovely to love, like your enemy. And hopefully you can reconcile with your enemy. In fact, those enemies may be in your own family. I don't know. May be in the family here. But uh, how's God going to work through you to the building up of the body of Christ in love? Let's pray. Father, thank you. Uh, I just pray that you've spoken to each one of us. I know you've spoken to me in many ways. And I just thank you for your word that it does not return void. I just pray you'd take these simple words and drive them home to each one of our hearts that we might really uh, benefit one another, that we would really minister to one another, that we would take these words, take them to heart, and then we would minister to the hearts of others. Lord, we love you, we praise you, and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.